This is the Urban Astronomer Podcast. Hi everybody, Happy New Year and welcome to the 41st episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast, which is also the first episode of 2019. I don't believe in New Year's resolutions, but if I did, I'd have already broken them by publishing this episode in the second half of the month instead of in the first week. Traditionally, in every town I've ever lived, December and January are pretty much dead astronomically because those months are the rainy season and the sky is generally hidden behind murky wisps of defocusing high-altitude cloud at best or thick black solid sheets of cloud at worst. I'm very seriously thinking of trading my own telescope in for something a lot smaller and lighter, which can be set up on the spur of the moment, rather than needing an hour or more preparation just to use. My vintage C8, with no guide computer, and that needs to be manually aligned every time I set it up, is a really beautiful instrument that delivers sharp, crisp images, but this stage of my life, I would happily trade that for something that I'll actually get to use more than once or twice a year. Anyway, 41 episodes in, we are approaching our half century, and I would like to personally thank each and every one of you who have stuck with us this far. Except that I can't, because for whatever reason, you're not a particularly chatty bunch. It's fine. I have logs on my web server which tell me that you're out there downloading and listening to these episodes, even if I don't know your names. Just knowing that you're out there listening keeps me motivated to continue making these episodes. And while I might struggle to put them out as often as I'd like, I am grateful for and even a little flattered by every single download. Now, a small number of you have gone the extra mile and pledged to support us on Patreon. Patreon, for those who have been living on an island for the past few years, is a service where you support your favorite bloggers, artists, activists, and any kind of creative by pledging a small cash donation each month. And the person you're supporting has the option to offer various incentives for bigger amounts to encourage extra generosity. My patrons are Peter, Catherine, and Margot, and as thrilled as I am for their support each month, I also can't help but feel that they must just be a little lonely. Just the three of them trying to support a small and overambitious podcast all by themselves. So help them. Go to www.patreon.com slash urbanastronomerpodcast and pledge a small monthly donation of just a few dollars. Imagine the smiles on their little faces when they see that they're not alone after all. Okay, now, anyway, enough of that. Let's get to the real reason you're here. To listen to the second last of our Scopex series of public lectures. This talk was presented by Angus Burns, who has an interesting and storied career in everything from nature conservation to music, and who recently took up astrophotography as a hobby and rapidly rose through the ranks of amateur astronomers to become something of a social media celebrity astronomer in his hometown. He is a professional scientist, currently working for the World Wildlife Fund, and also happens to be an old personal friend of mine. It was a joy and a privilege to have a chance to meet and catch up at Scopex a few months back. Anyway, here he is at that Scopex, speaking on astrophotography in the urban context. 
Thank you very much. Can you hear me at the back? Is that nice and loud? Here we go. Wood starts feeding back. Um, it's, a, it's a big honor for me to be here. I never thought I'd see this day where I would be invited to speak at Scopex because um, I didn't really realize until about five years ago that I was going to get into astrophotography. What I am not is an expert astrophotographer. I'm an amateur astronomer who's ventured into astrophotography and here and there I'm making a few images that I think are showing varying degrees of success. Others make me very proud and others I go when I see them. The point of this is it's a, a never-ending learning process and it's a little intimidating today because in this room there are a number of incredibly skilled astrophotographers sitting in the audience uh, and I ask them very politely not to ask any difficult questions <laughs> because I will then ask you to answer your own question. I'm just warning you ahead of time. So the, the contents of my talk are very simple. Basically where it all began for me, so it's a little bit of a personal story, not that personal, just as in my own story. My Urban Context, which is the title of this uh, particular presentation, the hardware and the software that I'm using, the, a few examples of some of the images that I've taken, and then a few steps to how you can produce an image, a basic image using freeware, and I think many of you know the freeware I'm talking about, it's called Deep Sky Stacker. That's the one I've been using, one day when I can afford, afford Pixinsight, I'll buy Pixinsight as well. So. Where it all began was when I was around about nine years old, so that was um, many years ago, and uh, I was uh, completely fixated with, with the universe, uh, so much so that I took to taking photographs of Halley's Comet uh, from my rooftop uh, as much as I could when it, when it came around. I'm hoping I'll live long enough one day to see it again. Um, and obviously they were dreadful pictures, but I thought they were really incredible. Um, and then I was given this little entry-level Celestron scope and I, I started really exploring the universe. And as I got older, I upgraded this equipment and this is as my budget allowed me. So where I live now is in northern KZN, which is um, Newcastle in particular. And I have a typical urban context to the majority of people who are probably in this room today. Uh, I have very, very annoying lights. I, I don't know, is there a pointer here today or not? Um, Anyway, I can throw something at the screen, but in the, in the, no, it's fine, it doesn't matter. In the corner of the top uh, left there, you can see street lights. Obviously, there's trees blocking views. In many ways, the trees are a blessing and a curse. They obscure some of the images that I would like to photograph, but they also block the street lights out. So I end up with these narrow bands of sky that I can plan my astrophotography sessions around. There's a few elements of this that I need in order to enable my photography endeavors. Um, one of them is that I need portability, so I need to be able to move the mount around depending on the season and time of year, because a lot of these are deciduous trees. Oh, there we go. Thank you. A green light. Is it a red lightsaber? There we go. So there's one of the street lights. There's a street light located somewhere behind there. And as I say, depending on the season, deciduous trees lose their leaves, then I've got to position the scope somewhere else, and I can get different images and block out as much of the ambient light as I can. Add to that the fact that um, Newcastle's based at the bottom of the escarpment, so we get incredibly dark skies at certain times of the year, but we also get a lot of dust and smoke from felt fires. And that creates a lot of haze, and then that also is an obstacle to decent astrophotography at times. Here's just a quick example of the kind of challenges I have. So here's the moon popping around the tree. This is the glow from the, amb the ambient glow from the street lights, and you've got to work around these types of obstacles. 
So we want to know what my hardware is. If any of you ventured past the Celestron stand earlier, you would have seen a bright orange scope. If there are any fans of the Big Bang Theory, not the actual theory, the series, you might recognize the scope sitting in the background of the big, I think it's a similar scope, sitting in the background of that series. It's quite an iconic uh, uh, telescope because as a kid I started with Celestron, I carried on with Celestron. And uh, I went through a, buying a small little Muxitov 90 SLT go-to scope and I thought this was the most incredible technology. And as the bug bit, I started upgrading and upgrading and I eventually got an SE8 and then I got a CGEM. So here's the list. It's a, a computerized German equatorial mount which basically translates to lazy astronomer. And then, uh, in other words, you don't have to look for the object, it just takes you straight there, which is wonderful. Saves a lot of time and it tracks really well. And then I used two cameras, a 60DA, which is the Canon camera that's designed for astrophotography, and a 5D Mark IV, which I piggyback on the, on the, on the mount. I use an X-Image 5 for planetary imaging. It's nowhere near in the league of what um, Cloud is producing, but it's giving me some results. Um, you know, Clyde has got a 14-inch scope, and you know, I'm still able to produce some quite nice images, which I'll show you in a moment. Using dull laptops and then a range of different types of software, some freeware, some not. Uh, DSS is Deep Sky Stacker, which is freeware. The Canon software that comes with the cameras I use for remote shooting. It's Photoshop, Lightroom, definitely not freeware. Fitz Liberator, um, which is, you can get download that. Uh, iCap freeware and Registax. That's the, the suite of of bits of software that I use. And just to remind you about this fact, as a, if you're a parent, um, this is a very important thing to remember, because it is true. Um, we, we never drink alcohol in our house. We live a very frugal life. Ask my wife, she's sitting at the back. In fact, I think I might have to sell the house soon if I want to buy what I want to buy next. The, what's it, Rasa, Ro Ackerman Schmidt Astrograph. Where's Graham? <laughs> All right, so I honestly never realized it was what, what could be possible with the technology today, from photographing Halley's Comet using a 35-millimeter camera, you know, on a tripod and waiting and pressing that shutter, you know, the little shutter, very hipster. And, and it, it was great. It, it produced something that inspired me, and now today with what you can do is just absolutely mind-blowing. And like I said, there are people here today who are producing exponentially better stuff than what I'm doing, but I'm on a steep learning curve, so watch this space. So this is just an example of the Milky Way as it came over my house the other night. Uh, piggybacked uh, 5D Mark IV on a CGEM, one shot, two minutes, ISO 1600, tweaked in Lightroom, and that's what I ended up with. Pretty cool. So as a budding astrophotographer, my first images involved the most obvious target, that's the moon. And that's where the bug really started to bite. This is not the first photo, though. This was taken through the scope with a 5D Mark IV. But this was one of my first photos, which was a, a, a cell phone held over the eyepiece and a shot taken. It's not a great photo, it's okay, but I thought, this is it, I've arrived. I am now an astrophotographer. And, and then, then I really started getting into this. And there were other things that happened tandem to this at the time um, around nebula and so on. But what I'm going to do is focus on the moon a bit, and then we'll switch to the nebulas and so on. And, and the photos that I've taken, and, and this also is through one of the groups I belong to on, on Facebook, it's, and it's an Afrikaans named group, so maybe Lafras, how do you pronounce it? Uh, Astrophotography Enthusiasta, is that correct? Yeah. So, so there's a group, and it inspires a lot of us to really do other things, not just very scientific looking photos, but artistic ones too. Uh, Lafras is a master at that. 
And, uh, I, you know, th this is the type of stuff now that I'm being drawn towards as well, is, you know, capturing the moonrise, a, a super moonrise, over metal steel in the foreground. Very romantic, but in Newcastle, this got a lot of lights, trust me, because a lot of people work there. Or over a landscape, you know, we're surrounded by mountains like that. Or an image like that, straight through the telescope, um, maybe, I think, five or six images, saturation, tweets slightly in Lightroom, and then stacked, and you end up with a bit of color. Now, I'm not a, an expert moon photographer. There's some incredible guys out there. Clyde's one of them. There's a guy named Tal, how do you pronounce his name? Talia, Talia, who's a, Tala, who's a, a guy, I think he's from Iran or Iraq or somewhere. Pakistan. And he is producing the most incredible images with a, a really basic setup, but amazing stuff. And that's part of this group we belong to on Facebook. But I'm pretty happy with the images I'm getting at the moment, um, including um, some of the stuff to do with the recent eclipses uh, over the last two years or more. So he has a, a series of photographs. This was taken through a Mach 90, which was that tiny little Celestron telescope. Uh, literally walked outside, stuck the camera on the back, pointed it at the moon, pressed solar align, and started tracking, and I took photos through the night just of that partial eclipse, and that was the result. Very quick, very easy. The recent lunar eclipse, I, I was a bit more elaborate. I, um, I set up uh, the, t the two cameras, one through the, the SE8, which is the 8-inch telescope that I use, and then others piggybacked all through the Mach 90, and ended up uh, getting the, the, the blood moon, um, as well as a couple of artistic renderings of that particular event. And I also, get, I also attracted a lot of very interesting attention. Um, I don't know how many of you have had this experience, but conspiracy theorists, uh, when you post your photos online, you're either accused of lying or being fixated with the heliocentric model of the universe and how the Earth is flat. I don't know if any of you have encountered that. Um, more on that in a moment. This is the more artistic type rendering of these events. This is where I, as the, uh, and it was actually, I think, Clyde who suggested it on the, on the group. He said something along the lines of, when the moon is covered, the sky is going to be quite dark. So maybe someone can capture the Milky Way and the, and the moon. And so I tried that, and it came out okay. There was a bit of motion from the trees and the wind. Um, but I did manage to get the Milky Way, and then I took a, a nicely focused shot of the moon and superimposed the two images, and that was the result. Slightly more artistic rendering. All from that urban context. You can see the, how the lights from the street lights are lighting up the trees, but it actually made quite a nice effect. And uh, yeah, I was quite happy with the result. That's a slightly more manipulated version later on. And this was my answer to the flat Earth responses that I got. So. Um, I don't know how many of you, as I said, have encountered this, but there is this theory out there that the Earth is flat. I, I, it's, somehow, people still believe this. Um, I do ridicule that theory now because I've, I'm past the stage of being polite about it. The Earth is not flat, and if it was, the, the eclipses would be pretty awesome, if you ask me. And this is another one, that before every supermoon, every eclipse, there's always this thing about either Mars or the Moon being the same size and visible only for that time ever in history, and it's the size of a, you know, I don't know, a, a basketball or something. It's not that case. As you can see, it's always visible from somewhere on Earth, and that's exactly how it always will be. Now again, this is embarrassing after Clyde's presentation, because Clyde is, a, is an expert planetary imager, but this is something I've ventured into. I haven't admittedly put enough attention into it. But this is through an 8-inch scope, so it's a very small scope. 
by comparison to a 14-inch scope um, using a little next image 5. And I've slowly but surely been improving with the images that I'm getting. Again, you know, these are billions of kilometers away, some of them. And taken from Newcastle, Northern KZN, it's still very nice to be able to produce an image. And this was my better Jupiter one so far with the moons around and Saturn. Mars, unfortunately, when I did do that shot, there was that dust storm that Clyde was talking about. So you can hardly see anything except that brown blur over there. And there's Venus. But all achievable from the front of the yard. You know, with the street lights around, the technology is allowing it to happen. And again, just a quick dig at the flat earthers, because this is another thing that I regularly point out to them, is that everything else in the universe forms the sphere when it comes to planets. For some incredible reason, nature on Earth is apparently causing these flat planes that uh, exist out there. But that is not the case, just for the record. So, so now, as I mentioned earlier, tandem to my embarking on astroimaging about five years ago, Besides holding the, the, the cell phone to take a photo of the moon, I also tried the Orion Nebula, and I took that. <laughs> it was through a little telescope. It was just a quick photo. And I thought, again, I, I saw this, and I thought, I've finally arrived. I am now a great astrophotographer. Look at what I produced from a cell phone. And then I started Googling the images out there, and I was severely disappointed with my efforts. So I thought, I can't let this happen, and, and I upgraded. I got a, the, the, the um, SE8 with an alt azimuth mount. So that first one was through the 90 SLT. This one was through an SE8. And already you can see the difference between the two. The one is an alt azimuth mount. The one is, um, uh, can carry a camera. The other one can't really. It's a bit small, but it could handle a cell phone. Um, and in this one, I read up on a few tutorials. And after a 30-second uh, uh, period of imaging, I think it was ISO 800, 30 seconds through the SC8 on an alt azimuth, I arrived at this image after 30 images were stacked in Deep Sky Stacker. And then I thought, no, 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 I've got to do better than this. And I upgraded. I went and bought a, a computerized German equatorial mount. And that was a complete game changer for me. That was the, the moment of truth. And when I combined that with a focal reducer, there was a bigger uh, area that I was capturing on the camera. And we started to move into these types of images. Um, you know, two-minute exposures or more different ones combined in, in, in Photoshop with a lot more detail coming out. Um, a little bit blurry, that one. But anyway, there's an example of a number of them combined with quite a bit of detail and some of the central core areas not totally burned out. So it's a nice one to practice on. Every year I set a target to improve my results for this image. And slowly but surely I'm getting there. It's an incredibly steep learning curve. Astrophotography is very difficult, I'm not going to lie. But uh, there's a lot of help out there. And that's the other side, is that um, astrophotographers are very generous, generally. Um, they like to share their knowledge. And that's been very useful to me. Um, this is a, an example of a Canon piggybacked on the C-Gem, on the, on the AC-8, mounted on a C-Gem. Two minutes, single shot, ISO 1600, as it came over. It was the one I opened with, except I'd cropped it. And then I did a slightly longer exposure of the, of the uh, how do you pronounce it, row of Fiki cloud complex, and it, it did render some of the colors quite nicely. It's a pleasing image, maybe not perfect, but a pleasing image for me. And then various nebula as I got into this. So the Running Man Nebula with, here with a satellite through it, I thought it was a meteorite. I got shot down in flames. It's actually a Chinese rocket traveling at 26,000 kilometers above the Earth, and it was 
perfectly mapped by, I can't remember the name of the gentleman on the group, but he produced the data for me. So you get lucky sometimes. A lot of people would be annoyed with it. I thought it was quite a nice photo to have that satellite captured in it. Uh, slightly wider field view of the two. This was done on a very hazy night, single shot, um, just quickly uh, altered in Lightroom. I'll do better next year, well, this year, uh, when I'm going to revisit that type of image. Uh, the Helix Nebula, I think this is one of the closest nebulas to Earth, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, again, with light pollution, can be quite a challenge. Now, I want to emphasize I'm not using light pollution filters at all. I'm using uh, post-capture uh, uh, manipulation of the, you know, with the software to remove as much of it as possible. There's probably a better way to do it, and I can probably learn how in the future. But for now, I'm still getting results. Uh, Horsehead uh, is another one. Um, the Ring Nebula. And again, all of this taken from the front of the yard, you know, like any normal, normal urban setting. Trifford Nebula. Uh, Lagoon Nebula, I really like that one, and this wider field shot of the two which I recently posted. I've always wanted to photograph this and I finally got around to doing it. Um, I'm hoping to do it again. The Rosette Nebula, Cat's Paw Nebula, it was a bit hazy that night, but if you look at it you can kind of make out what looks like a, a blob there and a blob there and a blob there, and it might look a little bit like a cat's paw. This one, I don't know, maybe it's a prawn. I think that's the tail there. And that, maybe that's the eyes. I, I'm not sure. This one, the very iconic pillars of creation. Uh, when I eventually get my rasa, I'll be able to produce something even more detailed and, and spectacular, but maybe hub, quite Hubble-like. Um, and that is a syndrome, by the way, with astrophotographers. I don't know how many of you suffer from it. It's okay to admit it here. You're among friends. Uh, the Hubble syndrome. Does anyone suffer from that? Yeah. I do. So, do you know what the Hubble syndrome is? It's where everything you take must look like a Hubble photograph, otherwise it's an absolute failure. And uh, that is a problem, I'm not going to lie, because I regularly look at it and I think, oh, it doesn't look like Hubble. That's a, that's not, that, that, that doesn't look like the pillars of creation photo I've seen. Now, this one was interesting, the Gabriella Mistral Nebula. It's very confusing. There's the proper designation, but uh, it's also called the Carina Nebula, which is incredibly confusing because there's the Eta Carina Nebula. But these common names have a, they can be problematic. But I chose to call it, to name it the Gabriella Mistral Nebula, as it's known, because if you look here, here's her nose. She's a Chilean pope, for those of you who don't know. There's her eye, and she's looking down that way. And if you shake your head left and right and up and down and you squint your eyes, you can sort of make out a person's face. The Gabriella Mistral Nebula. Um, also photographed in Newcastle. And this is one of my all-time favorites, Eta Carina. So this is the real Carina Nebula. An absolutely magnificent nebula. And uh, quite easy to photograph, actually. Um, some people might disagree. But I think it's a nice one, particularly if you're starting as an astro-imager, to maybe practice on something like this so that you don't get entirely despondent at first and you, get, you walk away with a result that you can be proud of. So that's a, a wider field shot and then uh, going straight through the SE8 uh, to the sort of central area there, uh, a bit more detail with these thackeries, globules and so on showing. Very, very beautiful nebula. Tarantula nebula, um, I've seen different color versions of it, more green. This one came out more red, maybe it was the haze. You can probably fix that if I was a bit more skilled. And then various clusters, open clusters, the Pleiades with some of the nebulosity present, uh, the Ptolemy cluster, 47 Tucani, 
One of my favorites, Omega Centauri, uh, it's, it's an absolute jewel and quite, quite easy to photograph, but focusing is critical. So you need to spend some time on that. And that's the beauty with some of these, uh, this camera software with the Canon cameras, is you can zoom in and then get pinpoint focus on the stars and then zoom back out and take your photo. So you can really get a decent image. Uh, some of the galaxies, it's not, unfortunately, the projector's missing some of the detail there, but the Sculptor galaxy, uh, how many hamburger galaxies are there? It's a whole restaurant chain of galaxies out there, <laughs> hamburger galaxies and so on. Um, but uh, this one is often called Hamburger Galaxy for obvious reasons, or the Centaurus A. And there was a recently a Nova, a supernova in there, I think everyone was trying to photograph. So I missed that opportunity, but there it is, uh, in the southern pinwheel galaxy. So the big question is, how do we produce images like this? And there are lots of ways. There are lots and lots of ways of doing this. Everyone has their personal favorite. I have got my eye on buying Pixinsight one day, but for now, Deep Sky Stack has done me pretty well, combined with Photoshop and Lightroom. Um, that's my setup. As I said, if you go to the Celestron stand, you can have a look at it. Um, but what I'm going to do is take you through a very short process, because I'm pretty much on time, of how to move from a basic image like that to an image like that. And by no means is this the... the epitome of perfection. It's just an example. So you can see here how in that image there's less detail and in that image there's a bit more. And that's the idea. It all depends on how much data you collect, how you stack it, what parameters you adjust and so on. And also the optics you use. Now I'm a big Celestron fan, as you know. There are other optics out there. But I've been getting good results with what I'm using. So, as I said, there are many ways. This is a, a, the window when you open Deep Sky Stacker. So you would have taken uh, your your basic images of whatever you're photographing, those are your, your light frames. Let's say in this case, I think I've chosen five, which I'll show you now. And then you have to take what are called, called darks, flats, and biases. And for photographers here, yeah, you'll know what I'm talking about. For those who don't, these are dark frames, basically white frames. They're very like a uniform white color and what's called a bias image. And these are to remove noise, hot pixels, interference from the sensor, all these things and ensure a uniform spread of light and so on in the image. And the beauty of the software is it combines all of this and then it yields an image that's pretty, pretty decent to look at. So it's important to, do, to, to go through that process. And that's the most irritating process for me. Because you spend a night doing all these photos, and then I've got to take the flats and the darks and biases, and you end up spending even more time out there. Because they have to be the same, the, the, the darks and the flats have to be the same duration as your exposure of your, of your light image, your image of the actual feature. So if it's 10 minutes or 5 minutes of something that you photographed, you have to do a 5-minute dark, a 5-minute flat, and then a bias is a very quick quick one. And that can take a bit of time. Anyway, so you, you import them. It's very simple. You open the picture files, you import them, you then check them. Then you import the dark files, the flat files, and the offsets, and it automatically checks them. You then uh, jump to the next window where it tells you that you've got all the right data there. If this is red then it tells you you've got something missing. So where I've got darks, flats, biases, and your pictures that you've taken in that uh, box, it'll say green light, good to go. Then you set what you call your um, detection threshold for the stars. Now, obviously, if you set it very low, you're going to get a lot more stars in the image. And then your processing is probably going to take a lot longer. Um, but I like to sometimes do it where, do it where there's a, a really good number of stars in the image. It looks beautiful at times, depending on how faint the nebula is. So the higher you set that, you put it at 10%, that number of stars drops, but the nebula still remains that you're trying to, photo that you're trying to stack. 
Then it'll say to you, uh, once you've done that, you click OK, and it comes up with this window, and it says to you, everything's right. The total exposure in this case would be 10 minutes, as an example. The longer the exposure, so in other words, if it's 10 times 2, it's 20 minutes, and so on, the total integration time. And if that's now an hour or two or three, it can take quite a while to stack all these images, but it does it, and it ends up with a, quite a nice results. And then it starts the process. And this is normally when I put on a series like uh, The Exorcist or... Um, I don't know, the cosmos, if you're into that, or, or something like uh, four weddings and a funeral, and I watch that while it runs, okay? And, uh, and then it ends up uh, producing an image. It stacked it all. So it took that raw basic image, and it produced something that you can now manipulate. And already you can see a lot of detail coming out in that. And there's, there's various levels here that you can adjust, particularly the luminance side. If you go in there, there's a slider, the mids, which if you adjust, you can remove a lot of the haze from light pollution quite effectively. And you can also make the image darker or lighter and so on. So what then happens is um, I then take the end result and I export it as a FITS image. And that then splits it into three, three components. So I adjust each one, red, green, and, and blue. And I can adjust each one for more detail depending on which one I want to manipulate to bring out more detail. And that produces these three TIFF files, which I then combine in Photoshop. Um, and that's the very simple process. I've also got a thing called Noel Kobani's Astrophotography Tools. And in that, I can bring out various elements of the nebula using um, uh, local contrast enhancement or that. It's basically scripts that run in Photoshop. that brings out various elements of your final combined image. Um, and then you end up with an image. And, uh, and that then is exported. I normally export it as a TIFF file. Sometimes I'll put it back into um, Lightroom. I might manipulate it a little bit more to bring out something that didn't pop quite nicely in the DSS process. Uh, or I might take that image and then I might modify the color in five different versions of it and then stack all those images or combine them and adjust the opacity of each image to bring out different degrees of, of detail. So there's a little bit of, um, you know, some people go the fully automated route. I'm sort of half-half. Some of it I do with an automated process. I load all the things and let it run. And then the other side is a more artistic side where I look at it and I think, well, what am, what am I trying to produce here with this image? And then I'll maybe look at a Hubble picture and I'll go, oh, okay, I need to bring the reds up a bit there and I'll tweak that and then, then it starts to pop. And then I, then I have something that I'm a bit more proud of. So you move from that to that. And, and that's, that's my workflow for that basic process. So, um, so having waffled on like this for ages, um, I thought I'd take a step back and be a little bit more serious again, if that's possible with me, because it's not often, and, and just focus on one of the things that has inspired me many, many times, and that is a quote from Carl Sagan, um, called The Pale Blue Dot. We spoke about it last night, and it's one of my go-to quotes. I absolutely adore this, this thing. And uh, it's be, it comes from one of the other uh, conspiracy theorists who attack me quite regularly, who say, you're so interested in worrying about what's out there in the universe, why don't you care about the planet Earth? And that's just very short-sighted. So what I'm going to do is read this, and that's the end of my presentation. And I think I'm bang on 30 minutes. So... Um, so I'll read it to you if you can't see it at the back. But it's, uh, and I'm not going to put on a Carl Sagan voice, because that's very difficult. I think early in Back to the Future did they do that. I think the guy did it with a headphone on the guy's ears. But anyway, Google it, you'll find the scene. So there we go. Look again at that dot. That's here, that's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of. 
Every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregates of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, <clears throat> every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed the talk. Thank you, Angus. Pleasure. Uh, I'm very glad you ended with that, because I gave a talk the other day and did exactly the same thing. <laughs> uh, it should be compulsory reading for every single human being on Earth. Um, and then some. And the unfortunate thing about it was that we had invited Carl Sagan to come to SciFest, and he died before he could come, which is a great shame and a great sadness. It is a shame. But having said my bit, Questions for Angus. Come now. <laughs> or is it all clear as mud? It yeah, I think it's fantastic. We're going to become great. <laughs> Thank you. So just a question then about the, the light pollution in your area. How, how bad is it really? Because I live just up the road here in the markets, and it is brutal. It's, it's just way too much. Uh, it's a massive problem in urban areas, and, and you know there's lots of studies being done into you know there's issues around people say that you know the issues are around security, for example, there must be streetlights, but there's no statistically measurable um, benefit from streetlights to curb crime. Actually, the studies have shown that. I think you've done a, a, some research into that, or, or produced some research. But the point is that those streetlights are a big contributor. Then, of course, you've got haze. From, from dust and smoke and everything else, and then you may have industries and the, the, the furnaces and so on then create more ambient light. It does become a huge problem. Luckily, the technology of today does allow us to get light pollution reducing filters and so on, which we can incorporate. I've, I've never gone there. I've got one. I'm lazy, I'll be honest. I haven't tried it out yet. I'll get to it. Uh, you know, I, 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 the problem is that where I live, we have very good dark skies when they're dark. Beautiful. But we also have many days where they aren't. And when it's a dark sky, 
I'm outside and I want to photograph and I don't want to be experimenting, I want to actually be taking the images. Um, so I work with, you know, I fall back on the things that I'm comfortable with. But it is a real issue. And just me saying that to you proves it because I have many days in a year where I just cannot, I can't really do decent photography uh, because of that haze and that light pollution. I've thought of, of you maybe using a pellet gun to solve some of the problems, but I think that would be criminal and I'm, I'm very much a law-abiding person. So I use natural vegetation and trees to block the light and wait for clear conditions after rainfall. And that seems to be the best way to do it. But in answer to your question, it is a problem. It's very much a problem in urban areas. And unlike some of the lucky people here who live in deep rural areas, um, we have to battle on, you know. But you can still produce images. You know? It's quite interesting. It's supposing we have a beginning of the year that a guy from Germany specializes in that. Uh, LEDs are becoming a huge problem because you've got 2% more light pollution now than you did before the LEDs came on the scene. Because the LED is also very bright and blue part of the spectrum, so they're very bright. And uh, <clears throat> it's amazing if I give a lecture, for example, in Cape Town, South Tower, the school, I ask how many, how many of you have seen the Milky Way? Not many hands go up. And if you're in a place like California, which is arguably the worst light polluted area on the planet, mm. after the big, big earthquake they had about what, 10 years ago, whatever it was, we quite a lot of observers are getting phone calls a few days later. And they were going to say, did the earthquake have anything to do with the strange appearance of the sky? Because <laughs> <laughs> they'd never seen the sky before. Yeah, the yeah. sleep light, the power went up. And for the first time, they saw the Milky Way and stars. Yeah. Never seen them before. In fact, in California, it's so difficult to see a full moon. Uh, well, yeah, but it's surprising how many people don't look up, even even when there is a clear sky. I mean, I regularly get a message out of the blue. What is that bright orange thing near the horizon? And I'll say, probably Mars. Where is it? You know, and then I'll take a little thing on my app on my phone and send it to the person. But yeah, I think uh, there's a lot more interest nowadays with with technology now in astronomy. I'm noticing that. Um, there's a group that I belong to online called it's called the Newcastle Classifieds. It's got 130,000 members, and I'll tell you this story because it's quite an interesting story, short story. But uh, about two years ago, um, after New Year's Eve, I think about 10 days after New Year's Eve, people were letting off fireworks, and I live in a very um, a town where people speak their mind. Let's just put it that way. So somebody went onto this group and said, and swore about it. Who is doing this? And who's letting off fireworks 10 days after New Year's Eve? And, it erupted into this horrible fight between people online. Horrible, horrible fight. So I thought, let me calm this down. And I went and posted a photo of the Orion Nebula. And I said, guys, calm down. Why don't you look at the natural fireworks up above? You know, these things are up there all the time. And the camera, you can unlock it. And it just exploded from there. Suddenly, people were saying, how did you do this? You lie. First of all, I got called a liar, that this is a... Uh, image I'd stolen off the internet and I said no no do a reverse, reverse Google search you'll find it isn't and then they started asking questions how do you do this and then I had teachers messaging me and saying can I take this image and will you photograph this eclipse that's coming will you do that and it's just evolved into this thing now where I feel completely obliged on a weekly basis to post something new on this this platform um, like I said it does attract some loonies every now and again and I do get attacked about flat earth and the end of the world and all sorts of interesting things. The, the Horsehead Nebula is a great one. The end of the world is coming because of the Horsehead Nebula. Um, but, uh, and the Blood Moon too. What, I've got a question. What does the Blood Moon mean? How do you answer that? Because to many people it means different things. But anyway, I tried to answer it in a nice scientific way. 
Long story short, it's, it's become a massive interest in that area, and we've got school teachers in deep rural schools taking these images, teaching about the planets and so on. So I think we're moving into a time when we can really capitalize on that with the technology, and despite the light pollution, with the tech that's available, you can still get decent images. I've shown you that. So, yeah, there you go. Angus, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you. That was Angus Burns speaking to us about astrophotography in the urban context. Next episode, I'll be playing the last of the Scopex lectures, featuring award-winning photographer Robert Ormerod, who presented the keynote speech titled Photographing the Northern Lights for the First Time. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please let me know with a personal email to podcast at urban-astronomer.com or by leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called these days or on Stitcher or on the show notes page on the Urban Astronomer website or you know wherever you found this episode. Your support on Patreon is my favorite thing, but these days not many people are in a position to give that kind of support, so... Reviews and recommendations might be more your speed. They don't cost anything more than a few minutes of your time. And, well, they say that time is the most precious gift, so I certainly won't complain if you decide to go that route. Anyway, if all of this naked begging and scrounging for cash and accolades hasn't turned you off, well, first of all, remember, we don't have ads on this show, uh, which... You know, that, that's rare and special thing these days. And second of all, don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast software to make sure that you don't miss the next episode, which, with any luck, will air within the next two weeks. Until that day then, thanks for listening, and I hope you have clearer skies than me. Bye-bye.